I am Roy Malloy and this is Dawn of Crime, a podcast that's dedicated to the history of Australia in unique ways. Typically speaking, I look at uh, criminals and, uh, and the people that added their shifty crookery to our history to make us kind of who we are today. But uh, this podcast, this is I'm going to use this as an a, a extra podcast, just something a little bit fun that is in keeping with the theme, but um, perhaps not exactly what I've been uploading in the past. So this this particular podcast is going to be a little bit about the day-to-day living of living in the past. Um, you know, I, I look at the concept of uh, history a lot, but we typically get to just read about the kings and the queens and the, you know, <laughs> the, the people who achieved incredible things. And, and that is truly, it's fascinating. But what we overlook a lot in the records and the stories that we tell, the stories of the everyday you and me, the, the people that live in a house, work at a job that they arguably probably hate, uh, have kids and, um, you know, have their hobbies and go to the pub. I, I find that fascinating. Um, I find that fascinating about people now, how they live their lives. Uh, but, you know, in the past as well, I, I find, I look a lot in the records to see what were the idiosyncrasies that people had back then. And I'll give you an example. This is probably the best example. I, I'm... 45 years old in 2020 and when I was I don't know maybe 14 or 15 The Simpsons was just everything wasn't it it was incredible and every day we'd go to school or hang out with our mates and all of us would quote the lines of Homer Simpson um, and you know my dad at the time said oh you know we we used to do that with Graham Kennedy and the Graham Kennedy show was huge in Australia. It was, you know, beyond huge. It was, there were only th- three stations, three, four, there were three or four stations back then. And like, I mean, instantly your choices were limited. In fact, now think about it, when Channel 10 put The Simpsons on, there were only four, four television stations, no internet. And so, you know, they had a captive audience. And, you know, it made me aware that it's probably not just a new thing. So in my research, you know, I found plenty of instances where people would sing the songs they'd heard that week on the on the at the the theater or they they would go to a music hall and they'd sing those songs and repeat those lines so these where we are like those people in so many ways but what are the other idiosyncrasies from the past that perhaps aren't quite the same so i i mean living i live in melbourne which i, I love the city of melbourne and sydney and you know, when I get a chance to be there, Brisbane, Adelaide, Perth. Um, but what I find is, as I look around the buildings, some of them I can see have been there almost since the beginning. And Melbourne went through two phases. Uh, it was kind of, there was a, a, a being built and established phase with small buildings and wooden structures, and then they were levelled. And, uh, you know, the, around about the 1850s in the gold rush, a lot of buildings replaced them. So we'll kind of look at that. We'll look at that as a time frame, that 1850 uh, era, as to 1850 to 1900. What would it be like to live in that 50-year period? And particularly looking at Melbourne or Sydney, this probably applies to maybe the other cities, but ultimately I'm looking at Melbourne. The first thing, it would be cobblestones. Cobblestones were everywhere. Blue stones uh, were quarried out of predominantly Footscray in the western suburbs. They sit on a volcanic uh, bed of just solid stone. And in fact, I'm aware that there's been a couple of moments where 
the uh, transport department of Victoria have looked at putting a tunnel, a western tunnel through there. It just can't penetrate it. It's enormously just solid, like iron, uh, bluestone slabs. But there were uh, bluestone quarries there, and they pulled out huge amounts of bluestone to pave all the roads of Melbourne. Um, and later, they used wooden blocks. Um, I remember them, the last of them in the city. There, there was a stretch in front of the Vic Market in between the tram tracks that was made of wood. And they were literally just wooden blocks that were placed, and they... It was probably a much cheaper option to put hardwood, but the, the hardwood was taken from Tasmanian forests that <laughs> almost made extinct things like the Western Red Cedar. Um, but beyond cobblestones, you're also then looking at puddles. It doesn't sound like much, does it? But puddles were everywhere. Hot or cold, puddles were everywhere. The, the, um, the curbsides on the roads, they were deep. And you'd have, all, you'd have a, a walkway, like a gangplank, that went between the footpath and the road in a lot of places. And all the water, all the sewerage, anything that was on the road would wash down into it, including a lot of horse poop. Uh, there were horses, that was, that was it. Uh, there were horses in Melbourne all the way up until the 1960s. There were horses getting around Melbourne, doing practical things too. Um, but they'd do what they needed to do, and it would be washed down into these gutters, and there it would sit until it rained. Uh, which brings me to the next point, is smells. <laughs> there were smells. I mean, everything stunk, in, particularly in big cities. Now, I, I don't have a lot of information about huge cities like London, but I would imagine it's just a, an amplified version of this, but it, it stunk. Um, and where you get that kind of smell, particularly when it's from, um, you know, human waste, particularly, you get things like cholera, diphtheria, and there's a huge amount of diseases that are present then that we don't have now. Polio, um, you know, whooping cough, hookworm. <laughs> it, it's a time when you get sick really, really easily. Um, so windows are another thing that you'd encounter that perhaps aren't the same as they are now. Um, window glass is the first thing I, I'd look at. Is When they make window glass now, it's made in a... A particular way that makes the glass flawless so as you're looking at your next window right you look look at it kind of side on get up beside it and look at it for the length of it and you might see one or two ripples or flaws in the glass uh, kind of normal but most modern windows don't have that at all but when they made windows in the past what they do is they were hand blown so you get a guy who blows a ball of glass on a long pole using his own breath to blow it, and uh, they blow it and blow it, and then they make it into like a tube that could arguably look like a bottle, um, and then they cut it down the, down the middle, and they flatten it, and that becomes the glass that you have in a window. So if you, if you ever get a chance to see a very old house and a very old piece of glass in a window, look at it side on, and you'll see that it's very, very rippled, and that that's typically um, a, a piece of glass that's been there since before, World War One and Two, when the technology changes, um, and, and windows were a pain in the, in the neck to open. They they were cumbersome. They didn't stay open easily, um, and, and then that also makes me realise that when it was hot, it was hot, <laughs> and so were you. When it was cold, it was cold, and so were you. Um, wool was a very common. Almost everything was made from wool. Even in some instances, underpants were made from wool. Um, and so then 
you know, in, in that situation where you're always wearing far more clothes than perhaps we would wear today and clothes made of wool, also remember anywhere you want to go, you've got to walk. Walking is just, that's it, that's a massive part of life. And I was talking to a colleague recently, I said, how often would somebody get the chance to be on a horse-drawn vehicle in that day and age? Like, is that something that you could experience once a day, once a week? And, you know, we, we then realised there was a class divide and that would determine how often you were on a horse-drawn carriage. And so, like, the, the situational uh, instances where you could imagine, um, and I've, I've seen records of this, where somebody says they were walking along, they saw a flatbed truck and uh, maybe the guy had a load of wood on the back or, I don't know, groceries or any, any amount of things, and they said, can I jump on and get a bit of a ride? Often they would say, yeah, give me a couple of pennies. Now, to give you an idea, um, money back then had three denominations, penny, uh, pennies, shillings and pounds, and an average wage might be as much as two pound a week, 1850 to 1880. Um, and so there's, uh, you know, to, to give somebody a couple of pennies is like, you know, five dollars. Uh, so that, that, that's a big part of life is walking. Everywhere you go, you're going to walk. And then in that mix also is uh, racism. I'm going to throw that one in there. Um, racism is probably a hot topic for me personally with a background and a family who are uh, first national uh, to the area of Jajawarong, which is um, up in... Uh, it's in kind of that golden triangle near Ballarat, but racism was uh, just open slather. There was no no restrictions. Uh, if you protested against racism, you were probably going to get picked on as well. Um, so you know, ra- just even in everyday language, I'm going to use some terms here that I don't endorse in any way, shape, or form. Um, but even some of our founders and leaders, people that we think were amazing people, when, when you look back at what they were proposing for policy, we're talking about getting, um, in one case, an instance I've seen recently, um, one of our founders was talking about getting, and I quote, getting boatloads of coolies from India to come and work here almost like slaves. Uh, and that was just normal. That's that's 18 30 to 50 so racism is a big part of life and then that kind of moves in towards religion (laughs) and religion was everywhere everybody was religious if you weren't religious you were probably going to be in some ways ostracised socially everybody belonged to churches and then that means everybody also belonged to the myriad of clubs and associations that churches used to have uh, when I grew up, I grew up in churches because my parents were church ministers. And uh, it, it was all-encompassing. And I think my life back then probably would have been like the lives that the people had in the 1850s and 1880s. Uh, in, my, my, in my upbringing, I had a you know, Tuesday night, we'd have a boys club. Wednesday night, we'd have uh, some kind of practice for an instrument, whether it be trumpet practice, whatever, at the church. Um, Thursday night, we'd have a Bible study. Friday night, we'd have a youth group. Saturday we'd play a sport to do with the church. Sunday we'd have three church services. So really, it was every day of the week you had something else to do with the church. Um, and so church was a huge part, and whether you're Catholic or Protestant was a, an enormous factor as well. Uh, I met a man who was in his 90s about 10 years ago. So that means that 1910 he was alive. 
which is just after this kind of period, and he said that his family was encouraged as children by their parents to throw rocks at the Catholic kids in the Catholic school as they walked past on their way to work, uh, school. So, I mean, it's, it's a rife kind of thing and open that there's a racial, uh, well, it is a racial divide, but it's a, a, you know, there's a prejudice against people based on the religion. <coughs> um, and then beer is a huge part of everyday life. Um, we, we kind of overlook how prevalent alcohol was in that era of 1850 to 1880. Uh, beer, it was safer to drink than water. I'm not necessarily sure that everybody thought that. That everybody said, oh, we'll drink the beer because the water's no good. It did happen, absolutely, but just everybody did drink. Um, and it, it was almost abnormal for you to not have a, a midday beer with lunch. Or, you know, some. I guess harder spirits were reserved for night times and winding down, but beer was just everywhere. And it was also racially set up that the Irish would drink ale. Uh, ale was the more popular beer. Uh, draft and pisses came in and that, that tended to appeal more to the English uh, and lager also to the Europeans but um, beer was everywhere, pubs were everywhere and then that kind of brings me to remember that pickpockets were everywhere and we're, we're thinking Oliver Twist right we know where the he, Fagin is able to effortlessly move around that mannequin that's adorned with bells get his hands in, get his hands out and never make the bells ring that was normal. There were pickpockets absolutely everywhere. And um, I'm reading at the moment stories about anywhere there was a line lining up for a ticket to see a play or a ticket to get on a train. Anywhere there were crowds at all, they would kind of push up behind you as though it was a, you know, you're just part of a crowd. And that was when you knew your pocket had been picked. They'd work in teams and they'd pick a pocket and then they'd hold it behind, whatever they pulled out of your pocket, they'd hold behind themselves and their partner would take it and walk off. That way, if you were grabbed, you had no evidence on you. And uh, really, it's an era of if you don't have evidence. And a lot of the time, the evidence wasn't just, um, you know, uh, did somebody see something or fingerprints or CCTV. The things we have now as evidence aren't the same then. Evidence back then was literally, I caught you and didn't let you go until the police came. Um, so then there's the concept of silence and noise when it was quiet back then it was really quiet Um, we didn't have the myriad of peripheral noises that we have now didn't have the the traffic noises didn't have the uh, I live in a a suburb just a nice middle class suburb in Melbourne but if I stand on my street at any time of the day or night I can hear traffic in fact, I can hear traffic right now. And, and I think you probably get that in any part of the, the inner suburban areas. But back then, traffic wasn't a noise. It was, there was the clatter of horses. A little bit later on, there was the kind of grinding hiss of the trams. But otherwise, it was really, really quiet. And then when the, the sounds and the noises of nature were, were more prevalent. Um, we've done a great job of getting rid of a lot of nature. <laughs> but when you heard a noise back then, it really stood out, um, particularly you know horse-drawn carriages or talking. There's a lot of uh, witness accounts in to do with crimes in newspapers where somebody says, "Yeah, it was uh, 9 p.m. and I heard talking outside." Now, can you imagine you're in your house 
and you hear talking outside and it raises yeah, raises your attention. I, I can't even imagine that because I don't know, I just wouldn't even think about it. But it was a thing that it was so silent that when it wasn't silent, uh, it really stood out. Um, I, I guess one of the things that my mum said also really stands out is the, the luxury of carpet that we have now. A carpet rug was very expensive, but otherwise you were walking on, on wood boards, you know. And it really wasn't until there was a period in the 20s, the 1920s, there was a period in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, where carpeting rooms was, you know, was, was a luxurious thing to be able to put carpet on every floor. But um, that, that really is, it's not, it wasn't prevalent or at all seen you know, prior to that. And so anywhere you're walking, you're walking on wooden floors. Um, and I guess then the last part kind of uh, it links to what, what this podcast is about is when you're a victim, no one cares. <laughs> in that day and age, uh, you could be punched in the head and you go to the police and they say, take us to him. He says, I didn't do it. There's not a lot you can do about it. Really, you need a lot of people to see it. And even then, you need the right people who can't be discredited as witnesses to see it before anything happens. Um, and so crimes were so easily committed the police walked on a beat and, and what that means is like a tram or a bus has its 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 prescribed route in that direction every night the police or day the police would walk a beat and they go down the street turn left down that street turn left and they'd walk in the same direction they had to get permission to walk in the opposite direction the reason for that is that they would walk at a pace that meant that they would see the copper at the other um, part of the the block and that policeman could make them aware of something they'd seen on the other side of their, their route or something another policeman had said. They could predict where each other would be, they could pass on messages um, and they could get back up if they needed it. But what this meant was all the, all the crooks had to do is just watch the beat and then they knew what time the policeman would be there and they could commit any crime they wanted before that happened. I find history fascinating for these reasons. If I had to choose, I'd, I'd like to spend a day or two in that time and place, but this is probably the time and the place that I'm happiest to live. I have been Roy Malloy. This is the Dawn of Crime. I hope you've enjoyed the, uh, these 20 minutes. And uh, Stay tuned. Please remember to hit follow on whatever device you're using uh, to listen to this. Also check out Facebook with the Dawn of Crime being a book series that I've written and uh, it's available on the internet just google The Dawn of Crime by Roy Malloy and uh, each book has a dozen or so biographies of different criminals from Australia between that period of 1880 to 1930 thank you for listening and uh, chat again